you turn your Bibles to John chapter 12, as we begin Passion Week here, uh, a five-part series, and I want to again encourage you, uh, second part will be tonight, so uh, if you want to get the whole story, the whole message of Passion Week, I'd encourage you to return again uh, tonight at uh, 6.30 as we gather together, but as we take this first segment, the King's Arrival You see, as we look at the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem, ultimately there's really only one thing that matters for you as a person and for all people as individuals, and that is who is Jesus to you? He's my king. He's my savior. He's my Lord. And a vast percentage of the people in this room would probably echo the same thing by saying amen. You see, he is our king. He's our savior. He's our Lord. But in this passage, and all of the gospel authors pick up the triumphal entry or the arrival of the king into Jerusalem, they write it from a little bit different perspective, each one of them. But for each of them, there is a truth that's contained within this passage that cannot be denied. Jesus accepts the praise of the people, and the anointing as the king. They're going to shout hallelujah. They're going to shout hosanna. They're going to shout blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're going to say the king comes. But is he your king? That's the question. Would you join me and let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we have again come to this place to hear the tale of the king. Jesus, we declare that you are the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth, your creator God. You're the great I am. We've sung praises to you today, and we honor you as our king. And we pray that your word would speak to us now. Uh, We pray for those who maybe came today and do not know you that right now, by the power of your spirit, you would begin to speak into their lives the truth of the gospel message. And as they hear it, they would believe it and receive it and profess you as king, as so many of us here today have. So we give you this time. Speak through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You turn to the 12th chapter of John's gospel, a little bit ahead of where we are on our Sunday morning studies. And we'll pick up in verse 12. And I want to approach this as a single narrative, reminding yourselves that in all the other Gospels, there is a companion piece, and each of them gives a little additional details uh, that are not contained in each of them, but all of them together paint the broader picture. Verse 12, John 12. And the next day, a a great multitude that had come to the feast, that feast would be the feast of Passover, When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, King of Israel. They make a proclamation. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, 
quoting there from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And therefore the people who were with them, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see, they're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What would you have said that day? What would you have done? Would you have joined in the crowd? Would you have pronounced Jesus as your king? Because that is the only thing that matters. Who's Jesus to you? You may have noticed in that crowd scene that there were all kinds of different people in there. There were some dressed as though they were members of the Sanhedrin. There were obviously Roman soldiers. There were the normal people who lived in the city of Jerusalem. There were people who were religious and people who were non-religious. There were people who probably just came to do their normal business or trade. But in the passage before us, there's actually three primary groups of people. And so the question still remains for you today, for me today, for us today. Is he your king? Of those people that were in those crowd scenes that you saw in that clip. The Passover pilgrims. Those were primarily Jewish people. Some that maybe had traveled with them, but for the most part, devout Jewish people who were heading to Jerusalem because it was the only place that you could celebrate Passover. It was commanded as one of the two feasts that every year had to be celebrated in Jerusalem if you were an able-bodied male. And so you had those that were coming for religious reasons. You had those that were showing up because it was their religious duty to be there. You had the local people who probably were a little bit put off by the fact that Jerusalem was so crowded. Maybe some of them were actually excited because maybe they sold a little extra firewood or maybe a little extra bread, perhaps a little extra cheese from their goats. Maybe there was something that they profited from, and so they were fairly excited. You see, the locals probably could have seen it either way. And then you had the religious leaders of the Jewish people who were very upset at the scene. And in fact, as we've already been seeing in John's gospel, they were plotting Jesus' demise. They were actually plotting to kill him. And were that not enough, they were actually plotting to kill Lazarus, who was with them as well. Because he represented the fact that Jesus could, in fact, do miracles. Because he was, in fact, dead, and he was, in fact, now alive. So the question remains. Maybe it looked like, and you can kind of see it in that dramatization, 
And maybe Jesus was getting ready to incite some type of civil insurrection or a riot or maybe some uprising and and perhaps he would be viewed as only a catalyst or a start to something uh, that would eventually overthrow Rome. But in fact, that's not why Jesus came at all. Jesus came for exactly one reason. He came that we might be saved. He came to give his life a ransom for anyone who would believe on his name. He came to pay the price for your sin and mine. He came to do what you could not do for yourself and I cannot do for myself. And that is to solve the issue of my sin debt with the holy God. And so to that end, he came to do the will of his Father. And as we've been studying through chapter 6, 7, and 8 in John's Gospel, Jesus keeps repeating the same theme, I came to do the will of him who sent me. So as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's not responding to some kind of plot He isn't showing up because, you know, a bunch of people got together and said, we really need you in Jerusalem. He was coming to fulfill the reason for which he came to this earth, and that is to die and to give his life for you. But you see, you have to believe that. I have to believe that. Those who watched this had to believe it. And that is where the issue comes for us every time we celebrate Palm Sunday. The king has come. The only question is, do you believe he's come? What did all this mean? When you think about this scene, in some ways it's very interesting. In other ways it's nearly humorous. And in other ways it's quite troubling. You see, for Jesus himself, he was being obedient to his own father. His father had said, son, it's time. It's time for you to head to earth. I'm sending you to pay the ransom, to die on the tree. I'm sending you, in essence, to your death. So for Jesus, one of the reasons that he stops, and if you read all four accounts in the Gospels, You'll find that Jesus, during this descent from the Mount of Olives, is described in Luke's gospel, stops and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And he said, for if you had only known, if you'd only known that I'd come. But you didn't want to. You see, that question still remains for us today. The gospel evidence is presented around the world. The gospel has not changed. It is faith in Christ alone producing grace that saves us, that forgives our sin. As we repent, we confess he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. But there isn't a plan B. There's one king and there's one kingdom. And you're either a part of that kingdom And Jesus is your king or you're not. You see, for the Romans, this scene must have been nearly laughable. Think about it for a second. 
if you are not a very good general, if you were a poor governor, chances are you would spend some time in Palestine. So named to erase ultimately the Jewish people's heritage. But you would be assigned to the city of Jerusalem or possibly, if you were a little better off, Caesarea Maritima on the coast. But if you were sent to Jerusalem, it was because you weren't really that great a ruler because it was not considered to be a threat to the power of Rome. There was a zealous religious group that had their headquarters there in the temple that we know as the Jewish people. And so there in Rome was a Roman garrison, Roman soldiers, a number of centurions, captains of a hundred. But it was a fairly small military contingent because Rome did not consider Palestine to be a threat to its power. And now you have a group of homeless guys with their leader on a donkey coming into town, and the people are going, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. I'm pretty sure they were not all that impressed. That's another perspective. But is that really who Jesus was? Is that what it meant? Or were the Romans missing their own need? And the answer is yes, they were. Because here's the truth in all of this for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's not one, there's none righteous, not one. And by the works of the flesh is no one, nobody justified. And so no matter whether you were friends with Caesar personally or you were a lowly fisherman from Galilee, you both had the same problem. When you were born, you were born in sin, as was I. Any of you that have children, you know something about them almost immediately. They are sinners. They learn how to lie, cheat, deceive, and steal, like after week two. <laughs> Amen? That's not yours. Where'd you get that? I don't know. It just showed up. We are sinners and we need a Savior. And we can't save ourselves. And so God's answer is an answer that's good for everyone. The humble high priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, my King, my Lord, my Savior. By grace and through faith. Not works. It's not on me, it's on God. So the people of Israel... We're thinking, well, what about the law? What about the temple? What about the sacrifices? What about the reasons that we're even here today? It's Passover week. And this is going to mess with our celebration. And yet, 
in the groundswell of this crowd, as Jesus comes over the top of the Mount of Olives, he's come from the east, he's traveled on what would normally be called the Jericho Road, he's made it to these little hamlets that are in the valleys on the backside of the Mount of Olives, and so on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem to this day is the brook Kidron. It's dry now, but during the winter it flows with some water. And on the south and on the western side, the Hinnom Valley. And there's these two mountains prominent, Mount Scopus, Mount of Olives. And all these little tiny hamlets, these little villages, nothing more than a handful of people living in little tiny areas, but now it's swollen with people because of Passover. And so as Jesus crests over the hill, he can look down on the Temple Mount. The Temple of Herod still on the Temple Mount. And he begins to come down what we transit when we're there on our tours down the Palm Sunday Road. He makes that descent. Winding around through the olive groves that were on the mountain, past the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will spend the final evening of his life and be arrested. But as Jesus comes over the top of the hill, you can almost imagine somebody initially goes, The king. And then someone else says, What did he say? I think he said it was the king. And then finally, other people hearing that, because there's people everywhere, they said it's the king. Oh, the king is coming. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. And all of a sudden, people start to gather along that dirt path. And before you know it, before they ever see Jesus, before they ever meet him, before they know anything about him, the king Can I tell you, there are an awful lot of people that come to church with pretty much the same thing in mind. Someone said, someone else, that's their king. Someone else, that's their savior. Someone else goes to church because they know Jesus. What matters is, do you know Jesus? And so here comes Jesus, this group of homeless guys And they're throwing their garments before him in the street, which was indicative of how normally a ruler would approach the city of Jerusalem. As a sign of respect and subjectivity, they would put their garments on the road and say, just walk over us. The palm branches were the kingly sign. You're our king. Reserved only for the king. But it was really the arrival of the Prince of Peace. A different kind of king, so much so that Jesus actually says so. He says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give you. Not as the world gives you peace do I give you peace, but I'm giving you my peace. Don't let your heart be troubled. It's an interesting statement in the city of peace, which is the meaning of Jerusalem. Jesus comes to this city that's overrun with Romans. Very religious. Knows their king's going to come. 
but to this day is a place that's been fought over. It's been the countless wars and battles. The diaspora, the Jewish people sent off, scattered. AD 70, when Rome was finally destroyed by Titus. That little destruction of Jerusalem is one of the scenes that's depicted if you traveled to Rome and you see the Arch of Titus, one of the scenes that's on there, very insignificant, is the overthrow of Jerusalem. You see, from the Roman perspective, they were used to triumphs. They were used to parades. They were used to kings coming, but when their kings came, they built monuments. When their kings came, it was with royalty and with splendor. And here comes Jesus on a donkey. They're saying, well, we ain't building no arch to this. There will not be an obelisk in the honor of this event. A tidbit of history. The Arc de Triomphe in Paris is actually modeled after Titus's arch in Rome. The reason that's important is people like to win. Amen? But Jesus is going to die. He's going to give his life. Many of them are thinking, I'm not sure I want a king that's going to croak. I'm not sure I want a king that's going to die. I'm not sure I want a king that can't do any foreign, anything for me right now. Can we at least get clean water? Jesus didn't come to clean up the earth. He came up to clean up men's hearts. Here's the truth. You see, because the rabbis in seeing this, they, they kind of understood the word. They, they knew about the coming king. But they weren't like you have the opportunity today. You see, I, I watch you guys pull out your cell phones and I can tell you're fact-checking my use of language and everything else. Did he really say that? But they couldn't do that then. As a matter of fact, they couldn't whip out their Bible. You know, if they happened to be a member of a synagogue, maybe they could abscond with the Torah scrolls and take them out in the street and say, hey, could you back over there about 60 feet? I want to see if I can find something. Because the scrolls were continuous. And so if it was a single book, the entire book was on one scroll without punctuation and without chapters and verses. So most people weren't going around, what? Yeah, I think I read that. It's in chapter you know, 3 and verse 6. So they knew the words of Zechariah, but they could not and did not sit around and go, well, I think Zechariah said this, and the psalmist David said this in Psalm 22, and oh, I remember Isaiah said he was going to die. They would have known the big pieces. This was so problematic for the rabbis that most of the rabbis had finally come to the conclusion that there had to be two messiahs. The one that Isaiah talked about that would come and die, and the one that was prophesied as the ruling king 
that's talked about later in the book of Isaiah and also in Zechariah's prophecies. So they figured, well, there's going to be one that's going to come and die, so guess which one they think Jesus is? He's the guy that's going to die. Because he surely is not the ruling one. Oh, how wrong they were. They actually had the events correct. Can I tell you, people often have the events correct, but they have their conclusion wrong. You see, the one Jesus is going to come twice. Because he's coming again. And the next time he comes, just as Revelation 19 says, he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a white stallion, and he's bringing the host of heaven with him. Amen? And at that time, nobody's going to be disrespecting Jesus. Nobody's going to miss who he is because on his thigh, in case you don't know, King of kings, Lord of lords. So everybody will know then, but this time, they need to think for themselves. It would be a little bit of a mystery so that the element of faith was real. So they begin to think on these things and they eventually would come to the conclusion, well, there's got to be another guy because it can't be this guy. Interesting that Luke records right after this event, Jesus is questioned on this. The disciples are talking to him in chapter 24 and he says, oh, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus says, if, if, were you guys paying attention? Sometimes it helps to modernize these statements of Jesus. Were you guys paying attention? When you, Peter, when you were in Sunday synagogue, which is like Sunday school, and the rabbi spoke to you about these prophecies of Isaiah and Zechariah and Daniel, when the great psalmist said, that the Messiah would cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Were you paying attention? Because I came the first time, I'm going to die. And he will go on to say, ought not the Christ who have suffered these things to enter into his glory? It's part of the plan. Jesus came to die. Now, from a Roman perspective, wow, some king dead his first week in office. Oh, think about it. Think about it from a Roman position. Whew. Glad he didn't take us out. There would have been a lot of mocking that week. That's why Scripture says they mocked him and beat him. That first entry, Jesus was left alone, even ultimately by his own father. Amen? Why? Because the chastisement for your peace and mine was put upon him. God the Father could not look on his own son while Jesus paid the price for our sin. That's why Jesus came. It was to pay the price for my sin.
He came for those stripes. He came for that trial, which we'll cover tonight. He came for the express purpose of dealing with Jeff's sin in mind. Yes, it's true before the foundations of the world, I was created in Christ Jesus for good works. But in order to get me to those good works, my sin needed to be cleaned up. I needed the forgiveness of God the Father because I had declared war on him with my sin. And so Jesus solves that problem by dying and saying to Telestai, it is finished. As he gets on that donkey, I, I can only imagine, you know, the view of the people who owned the donkey, one of their prized possessions, certainly. But you can almost see the owner in the background going, I wouldn't get on him if I were you. This is not a smart thing to do. That is an unbroken colt right there. You're asking to see the ground quickly. As Jesus goes to the donkey and says, um, could you go kind of slow? And the donkey knew that this was the king of creation. You know that. Can you imagine that donkey, how the donkey felt? It's like, yeah. Check it out. You know, I don't know if donkeys can communicate to each other, but he's like proudly prancing down the road. I got the king of kings. He's creator God. He could have spoke directly to that donkey. He created that donkey. The only question is, do you believe that there's a creator? Do you believe that creator loves you? Do you believe that creator wants to have a personal relationship with you? There's going to be a funeral this week. The world lost one of the brightest minds that we've seen in the last hundred years. Stephen Hawking passed away from ALS, this terrible disease he had. And when he died, you know, people have speculated that he mentioned the name Jesus and stuff. Been very, very well documented. In fact, he denied Christ to the end. Unfortunately, he now knows that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's an interesting thing that's going to happen at that funeral. Because the father of the science that Stephen Hawking studied for his entire life is going to be buried right next to him. Sir Isaac Newton loved the Lord Jesus. And right next to him also in the same place in the cemetery is the father of one of the greatest lies that the world has ever known, Charles Darwin. So even in death, there is an example of the two roads to choose. The road that Isaac Newton took, which believing that there was a creator God that dwelled outside of space and time, who interjected into his creation laws of physics that were immutable and could not be moved because God himself spoke them into existence. And Charles Darwin, who believed that everything is nothing more than a grand accident. And there with them, the great Dr. Stephen Hawking. 
same choice is yours today. The same choice is yours today. I don't believe Isaac Newton, the founder of the science of physics, was a fool. And I don't believe that Charles Darwin nor Stephen Hawking were unintellectual. But they are examples exactly of what Romans chapter 1 says. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they worshiped the creation rather than the creator, who is God forevermore. You see, when Jesus arrived, he came as creator of heaven and earth to die for us. So the question becomes, what is your reaction to the news? Strange, verse 16, to me is the reaction of the disciples. Now you would think if anyone would get it, it would be the guys who camped with him every single day. The disciples. But this just goes to show you how close you can be to the truth and not quite get it. At first they didn't understand. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that were written about him and that they had been done to him. Don't let that be you. Don't get close and miss it. Don't don't allow the enemy to rip off the truth from your mind. Christ died to set you free. The king came so that you could have life and that life more abundant. Jesus loves you more than you will ever know. Or or the people who just showed up because there was a great show going on. You got the formerly dead guy walking around with the homeless dude. Now think about it for a second. In that context, that's what it was to them. It was kind of like the best news that was going on at the time. The reason that sometimes we turn on the news, let's be honest, we're, we're actually looking for something sensational. It's the only reason that anyone would ever watch NASCAR. We, we watch for the wrecks, right? That's why people watch auto racing. You're not watching people go around in a circle. You're waiting for somebody to mess up. That's what they were waiting for. They were going, what's going to happen next? Like, maybe he'll die again. Jesus will raise him again. Something spectacular. Don't be here today because you're looking for something spectacular. Don't be here because you've heard it all before. But you haven't believed. Or, or the last group, the religious rulers of the day. They thought they knew better. They thought they already knew God. Don't let that be you. The simple truth of the simple gospel is this. Jesus Christ came so that you might have life. Jesus Christ came to die. Jesus Christ was crowned king of a kingdom 
which you can be part of if you so choose. And no matter whether you came in today and you have a rough existence right here and right now, or you came in and you have things pretty good in life, Jesus said, I I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am you might be also. What he's saying is, this world is not your home. My home's in heaven. And one day, I fully intend to come back with King Jesus. The only question is, is he your king? Would you stand with me? Jesus wasn't manipulating them. He wasn't forcing them into some kind of theologic corner. He was giving them an opportunity to discern for themselves who he was. If you're here today and you already know the Lord, I want you to actually begin to pray for anyone in this room who does not. Because that's actually the reason we're here, is to give you the opportunity to know the Lord. You see, I can tell you about Jesus all day. But knowing about him doesn't take care of your eternal destiny. Knowing him personally does that. And I want to ask you right now, if we bow our eyes and our heads and just begin to pray. If you don't know him, if you can't say that Jesus is your king, but you want to know, you can pray to receive him right now. And if that's you, I'm just going to ask you to simply raise your hand right where you're at. And we're going to pray together. I see that hand in the back. I see that other hand in the back. Anyone else? See that other hand, that other hand in the back as well. Anyone at all? See his hand in the middle. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. He's your king. He just simply asks you to acknowledge him. Slip your hand up. I'm going to pray with you right where you're at. I just want to lead you in a simple prayer, and you will invite Christ into your life to be your Savior and your Lord. See that hand in the front. See this other hand in the front. Praise the Lord. Just keep him up for a moment. I see that hand. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else? Just slip your hand up. See that hand. His hands up all over the sanctuary. If you want to join him, just stick your hand up. I'll give you a couple more seconds. For those that raised your hands, now this is the tough part. That's the part that I can only lead you in that I cannot do for you. You need to invite Christ into your life. I'm going to say some words, but they've got to come from your heart. And so as you put your hands down, and would you pray out loud with me right now, just follow these words and mean it by faith. Dear Jesus, confess that I am a sinner and that I need a Savior. I acknowledge you as my king. I thank you for forgiving my sin. And I'm asking you to cleanse my life. 
I'm asking you to put my name in your Lamb's book of life. I want to walk with you all of my days. And as I confess my sin, I know that you are faithful and just to forgive it. And I receive the gift of faith right now and grace that saves me. I acknowledge you. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.